Three years ago next month, the Australian government released a white paper. It was called Australia in the Asian Century. And as I'm sure we all remember, uh, in its pages was a very Panglossian view of the rise of Asia. The rise of Asia as a boundless opportunity for Australia and Australians mainly to make money out of. What I'm going to suggest to you today is that the rise of Asia, which I think is going to happen and is happening already, may not be such a great thing. The rise of Asia may end up stripping away one of the very conditions that is basic to how we live our lives and how we see our possibilities. There's a condition that underpins how we live our lives that we so take for granted, we rarely think about it. This condition is what I call globalism, a shared expectation that human activities, aspirations and interactions can range across a planetary scale. Now, not all humans are able to make use of the possibilities of globalism. There are still far too many people on this planet that are poor, uneducated and repressed. But they know that for others like us, globalism is a reality. That's why so many of the poor, uneducated and repressed are trying to move to places where they can access the possibilities of globalism. Globalism underpins the expectation that anything we consume can be sourced potentially from anywhere on the planet and that the prices we pay are set by global market forces of supply and demand. It means that if we're wealthy and motivated enough, we can vi visit pretty much any part of the Earth's inhabited surface. Globalism means we're unsurprised that the news in our morning papers comes from wherever in the world significant events are happening. It increasingly means that the expectations and standards by which we live our own lives, we expect to be available to people elsewhere also. That globalism is so basic to how we live doesn't mean it's inevitable and here to stay. As I conclude in my book, Restless Continent, globalism may be one unforeseen and monumental consequence of the sh shift in global economic and military power to Asia. Why? Because in the broad sweep of human history, globalism is a recent Western invention constructed and maintained by Western power and it, may not, it, and it may well not survive the eclipse of the era in which the power of America and Europe were able to dominate the global order. For millennia, humans, li humans lived in mutually independent and mutually unaware political ecologies. The great civilizations of East Asia interacted occasionally with each other and those of Ireland Southeast Asia, but knew or cared little of the societies further west, whom they dismissed as barbarians. Greece and Rome, Byzantium and Christendom 
knew of vague reports of Eastern empires, but traded, fought and travelled only within their immediate geographic regions. Silks and spices did make their way from one side of the Eurasian continent to the other along the Silk Road and a great Indo-Pacific maritime highway. But these goods were transshipped along different sets of, among different sets of traders along the way, with none having the knowledge, confidence or desire to travel the whole way. When Vasco da Gama reached the coast of India in 1497, he was determined to incorporate all of the rich Asia trade under the sole command of the Portuguese crown. So began the first age of globalism through a process of incorporation. The imperial age in effect incorporated the rest of the world into Europe's own logics and rivalries and dynamics while stamping out the various regional power orders that had, had existed until that era. By the 20th century came globalism's second phase, the age of emulation. The European colonisers were sent packing, but their methods of organising societies, politics and economies were adopted by the newly independent states as were their methods of dealing with other states. A third phase of globalism followed soon after. To deal with the southern lo sudden loss of their direct political control over other societies, Europe and the United States instituted a system of stabilisation. Stabilisation manifested in an intensive period of forming collaborative institutions such as the United Nations and encoding certain liberal norms in order to stave off another destructive bout of global war and economic instability. The Bretton Woods institutions that we know today and that Simon mentioned in his introduction were formed to preserve the global reach of the post-war economy despite the independence of former colonies and to build a cushion of stabilising rules and institutions around the unpredictabilities of economic cycles. While many of the new states were not parties originally to these institutions, the architects of these institutions were strong believers that they would join these institutions and that they would socialise these new states into a new form of globalism. A fourth form of globalism, that of competition, developed almost simultaneously. The Cold War struggle was essentially between two alternative forms of globalism. A liberal variant championed by the United States and its allies, and a communist variant championed by the Soviet Union and China. Each side of this struggle had no doubt that the way it ordered its own affairs should be how every human on the planet should live their life. <clears throat> I argue in Restless Continent that to really comprehend the rise of Asia, we must understand the motivations and fears of the societies of Asia that are developing so quickly. This means setting aside our own preoccupations and interests and looking at the world as they do. 
Where we see their rapid economic growth as universally beneficial, Asia's developing giants see a fraught and uncertain challenge of maintaining sufficient growth to maintain equilibrium and opportunity for their rapidly changing societies. Where we celebrate the growing enmeshment in the global economy, they worry about the volatility of world markets and their potential to destabilise their own societies. Where we see global rules and institutions as providing the basis for Asian society's development, they often see global rules as slanted in favour of those who already have wealth and power and who want to keep hold of it. Where we hope wealth will bring peace and investment in the status quo, Asia's rising powers are increasingly prey to rivalries over status, respect and hierarchy. With the rise of great powers in Asia, Japan, China, India, Russia and perhaps in time Indonesia and Iran, we need to question the longevity not only of the content of international order but of its global extent also. In their demand for access to resources and energy, their expectations of respect, their frustration at their persisting lack of meaningful voice in global institutions and their need for reassurance against fears that they are being encircled, Asia's rising powers are starting to look past global institutions and to construct alternatives that, us, that they see as more conducive to their interests and opinions. Already the Chinese president has started to talk of, quote, Asian solutions to Asian problems, unquote, and extol the virtues of a new harmonious regional order, harmonised to China's preferences, of course. Since Nehru in the 1960s, Indian elites have pursued a goal of constructing their own version of the Monroe Doctrine and excluding from the Indian Ocean region any interest seen to be hostile to India's interests. In Moscow, President Putin harbours plans to exert influence over the former Soviet sphere of influence while constructing what he calls a Eurasian Union. With the dysfunction of global institutions and the vanishing prospect that they can, reformed, they can be reformed to better reflect international power realities, this century's international relations could see a gradual crumbling of the globalism that has prevailed for half a millennium. The next phase of world order could very well be one of disarticulation, where Europe, America and each of Asia's great powers compete to build zones of influence and deference around their borders and with regions and countries of importance, such as resource suppliers. In between these spheres of influence would be stretched an increasingly threadbare tissue of global rules and institutions. The result would be a new feudalism, where the world is divided into mutually exclusive fiefdoms among the great powers. Within each fiefdom, 
a different great power would determine economic and political affairs, values, aspirations and commitments. The rules within each sphere or fiefdom would be set and followed hierarchically. Among the fiefdoms would be basic rules of coexistence and meagre flows of information and commerce. It would be increasingly rare to travel among the fiefdoms as their different languages, norms and expectations became increasingly mutually incomprehensible. World affairs would be managed by the great powers negotiating directly with each other. If this seems dramatic and rather far-fetched, the plans and the discussions for such a world already exist and they have existed for some time. At the end of the Second World War, globalism battled with another blueprint for securing the post-war order, championed by influential figures such as Winston Churchill, Joseph Stalin and the American columnist Walter Lip Lippmann. All three and many more besides saw globalism as a recipe for disaster leading to more instability and ultimately war. They argued that instead of globalist institutions such as the United Nations, the great powers should construct mutually exclusive spheres of influence, each to be managed by a different great power. World order for them would be a series of different zones of management, with powers having no business interfering in any but their own. Now, with growing disagreement between an increasingly heterogeneous and heterodox collection of great powers within global forums, such a disarticulated view of order has started to appear attractive. And if we listen very hard, we can see the beginnings of the rise of this different way of thinking. There is a growing sense that the great and powerful should develop a different form of relations among themselves and use these relations to strike deals on how the world should be run. China's president, Xi Jinping, has, in, has advocated, quote, a new model of great power relations, unquote while Vladimir Putin also speaks of a handful of, quote, um, important relationships, unquote, those with other great powers. Major trade and investment initiatives such as the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership propose erecting new and exclusive trading blocks around selected countries' commitments to exacting trade and investment standards. While theoretically open to any country joining, in reality they would impose such heavy costs on developing countries as to be prohibited, prohibitive. In response, China's One Belt, One Road trade investment and infrastructure initiatives could construct an alternative zone of economic dependence on the Chinese economy. In this world of rivalry and interdependence in which, which we are entering, the best way of exerting influence is through such forms of economic statecraft. Meanwhile, our information globalism 
in the form of the World Wide Web is also in danger of disarticulation. No government with the, me with the means is willing to keep its hands off the internet. Different forms of control, surveillance and filtering for a range of different motives are the norm now rather than the exception. When, in October 2013, Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff announced that Brazil would be building a, quote, walled-off national intranet, unquote, she may have been heralding the birth of a new feudal information age. Just this past July, China passed a law stating that its sovereignty extends into cyberspace. Already the faces of information globalism, Facebook, Twitter and Google, are being forced out of China, out of the China market and replaced by local variants. Moscow now requires all internet companies operating in Russia to store Russians' data on Russian soil. The countries of South America have mooted building their own fibre optic network to reduce the risks of US spying. If you're alarmed at the prospect of a new feudal age, you should be. Globalism's four great benefits risk being eroded by the forces of neo-feudalism. Most basically, globalism has made us wealthy. For all of the critiques of the neoliberal global market, it has underpinned the greatest period of wealth creation and poverty eradication in human history. A world of exclusive economic fiefdoms would mean smaller markets, distorted incentives and restricted specialisation and bring an age of sluggish growth and persisting poverty. Globalism has also made us smarter. Whereas in 1900 it took a century to double the stock, the total stock of human knowledge, today human knowledge is doubling approximately every 13 months. The ability to access knowledge wherever it is created, critiqued, synthesised and commercialised has pushed human knowledge, the human knowledge frontier further and faster than ever before. Global knowledge flows have allowed impoverished societies to become tomorrow's economic behemoths. But as governments and companies start to control who can access what knowledge and where it puts fences around human curiosity and creativity. Third, globalism has made us more responsible. The effects of our actions on the planet and on other societies has become a bigger and bigger part of our consciousness and our consciences. As we create knowledge and wealth, our sense of our custodianship of the earth and its inhabitants grows ever more insistent. But a fracturing of our consciousness by dividing us up into separate fiefdoms will start to reverse this process. Living in worlds of smaller horizons, it will be easier for the destructive consequences of our actions to be out of sight, out of mind. Finally, globalism has made us more cosmopolitan in all of the richness of that word. 
we are now more prepared to celebrate than disparage human diversity than ever before. Our tastes and appetites are more varied and vibrant. Less and less is culturally unfamiliar to us. The blending and mutual celebration of culture occurs every day right in front of us. And that we feel shame and anger at our inability or unwillingness to help people in other societies shows just how far our sense of empathy and responsibility to others has slipped the bonds of family, community and nation to embrace all humans. It's hard to see how this rich, easy cosmopolitanism would survive the world's separation into mutually uncomprehending fiefdoms. Ladies and gentlemen, to borrow an old metaphor, globalism is like oxygen. We don't notice it, we don't notice how much we depend on it until it starts to run out. As non-Western powers rise and Western powers compete with them uh, for power and, uh, and wealth, the globalism we've benefited so much from could come under very real threat. Even with all of the mutual suspicions and rivalries that this new age of Asian wealth and power brings, we have a common human interest in making sure globalism is not a brief phase of human history but a new and enduring normal. Thank you. Just remind you, we've got quite a lot of time for questions if you want to ask them. There's a microphone here on the lower level and just up the top there. So if you're on this side of the room, there's a bit of a walk for you around back to get to that microphone if you'd like to use it. Uh, and likewise here. So if, you, if you've got questions you want to ask of Michael, please go to the microphone and I'll come to you in a moment. Because I just want to start off, Michael, the, the world you describe sounds eerily similar to George Orwell's account of the world in 1984. Mm -hmm. Three great regions, all controlled, all at war with each other, mm -hmm. although you didn't propose necessarily that would be the case. But I'm just wondering for Australia, I mean, I can see the history of any region being plagued by conflict, You'll always have those parts on the edge that want more autonomy than the governing power is likely to give. We've seen this happen throughout history. Some place, places in the world are naturally going to be assumed within a, a particular model. If this happens as you think it might, what's Australia going to do? Because traditionally it's been allied to the European-American world and yet geographically, economically, it's integrated much more in that world, which is likely to be seeing China as its dominant power, although there's India also to contend with. So where, where do you think it might work out for us? Will we be able to have to make a decision or can we maintain some kind of neutrality between systems? I'm not sure the decision will, will essentially be ours. I wonder whether the decision will be made for us. Uh, the world, the world um, that this kind of dy dystopian vision uh, suggest is a, is a world uh, that will ine inevitably divide us from the things that are very important to us. Uh, Australia is uh, uh, a very heterodox society in, in the things in the world that are important to us. Um, uh, European and Western culture and, and those linkages are very important to us, but we are heavily dependent on Asian markets. Uh, and increasingly, uh, we have, uh, I think, a, a, an increasing um, engagement with Asian cultures as well and, and the varieties of, 
of, uh, of Asian cultures also. So a world that is divided in any way is a poorer world for us. It's also a world in which we have much less uh, ability con to control exactly where we sit and uh, we have much less ability to control uh, the things that go on outside of our shores that are important to us and increasingly pro possibly the things that, are, that go on inside of our borders that are important to us as well. So when you say which, which block would Australia be part of, uh, I'm not really sure. It depends on uh, how the dynamics of such spheres of influence come into play. Um, there, is, there has been um, some suggestion among conservative American writers that Asia could in fact split, our part of Asia could in fact split, mm. where you would have the economies of continental East Asia, if you like, forming a, a block uh, around the Chinese economy uh, and adopting models of state capitalism, um, high protectionist barriers, uh, closely regulated uh, money markets and, and resource flows. Uh, and then you would have a kind of a maritime domain uh, oriented very much towards the American economy uh, of more liberal market type, type economic uh, uh, situations. And the presumption there is that Australia would fit into that kind of free market operating environment. The problem with that is, is that we don't have any natural markets there. The United States is uh, more often than not a, a, an economic competitor of ours. Uh, it often uh, um, exports the same sort of things that we do and doesn't have a huge demand for, for the things that we export in, in great numbers. Well, what about India then? Because you can't naturally see India just falling into line with an East Asian regime which is dominated by China. Mm. Would they form part of a linkage between the US through this maritime zone into the Indian Ocean? Uh, quite possibly, quite possibly. Or India could um, see its own zone of influences stretching eastward, uh, westward from India uh, through, through parts of West Asia and into parts of East Africa, quite possibly. Yeah. Um, it really does. I mean, Indian elites really do have this vision of the Indian Ocean as India's ocean and uh, uh, this view that uh, as India's power rises, it will increasingly be able to construct a zone for itself there. One other theory I've heard, and it's a slightly improbable one, but at least there's some historical link, is to see an arc of continuity built around at least the uh, southern hemisphere, um, bits of the northern hemisphere arc of Commonwealth influence from South Africa at the bottom, this big arc you can see of Commonwealth nations from the old British Empire through the subcontinent down into Australia at the other, and New Zealand as the other anchor point. Mm. Any thoughts that that might actually have some legs? Look, I, I'm, not, I'm not a big believer in, in the, the Indian Ocean Rim concept. Uh, I'm not sure there's enough that brings those countries together uh, in the way that the great Pacific Ocean arc Not worked. even cricket? <laughs> well, you know, with the Indian Premier League, there is a bit of money there. But, uh, yeah, um, so, it, look, you know, it, it remains to be seen how this, how this might develop, if it does develop. But uh, the idea that the great powers have special relations among, each, among themselves and that they can work out um, the main aspects of the way the world works among themselves let's say a handful of five to eight great powers, is something we should be extremely concerned about. 
Okay, well, let's throw it open. Um, we'll go to each of the microphones in turn and get through everybody. I'd just ask if you could just say your name and, as the little video said, nice crisp question. So, microphone one, please. Hi, my name's Aidan Morrison. Um, Michael, I wanted you to uh, share with us whether you're concerned about great power conflict occurring, particularly around these tricky little uh, border zones, maybe in that um, maritime part of Southeast Asia where countries like Thailand, Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia might kind of see themselves potentially going either way. How does that get teased out between the great powers and could there be war over that sort of thing? Thanks, Aidan. Uh, my answer is yes and no. Um, yes, I think that the prospects of conflict are quite, uh, are, are quite high, uh, but no, the, con the, the prospects of these conflicts uh, developing into extended war are actually quite low. Let me just explain what I mean by that. Uh, what we're seeing in the nations to our north, and, and I talk quite extensively about this in the book, is really an arms race has started to, to develop. And it's over particular sorts of weapons. So these are not spectacular weapons that countries are buying. They're buying them because they're extremely effective uh, and they're relatively cheap. What I'm talking about is maritime weapons systems such as submarines, missiles, um, certain surface combatants, uh, uh, ships. Um, they are um, pound for pound uh, very good at deterring other countries, particularly powerful countries. So there's a, there's a major arms race going on. The problem with a lot of the countries that are buying these weapons is that they're not very experienced in using them. And Asia's waterways around what I call Asia's southern tier um, are very, very crowded and they're becoming increasingly more so. So the prospects of miscalculation, the prospects of rivalry, um, the prospects of a, a hothead deciding to do something precipitous, I think, are actually quite high. Will that develop into, into a major war? I, I think is unlikely for a couple of reasons. Firstly, um, the economies of these Asian rivals, and I would include the United States as an Asian rival, are much too intertwined. Um, they would be terribly damaged by the prospect of, of um, extended war. The other thing is that uh, the, the great powers in this part of the world, so I would include there Japan, China and India, um, are actually heavily dependent on external energy supplies. So uh, China at the moment is over... 60% of, of all of the oil it, it consumes, it has to import, and it has to import most of that from uh, the, the Gulf region, the Persian Gulf region. Uh, China simply doesn't have, neither does Japan, neither does India, have enough energy resources to keep a conflict going for, for, for as long as it needs to. If China really was to take on the United States, the United States Navy in the Indian Ocean would be able to step on its energy lifelines pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, by, by the, the latest accounts, uh, if it keeps functioning at current levels, China has about 30 days' worth of energy uh, within its, its, uh, its, its own borders at the moment. So the ability to resupply that will... And that doesn't go for other things. The Chinese also aren't able to make um, advanced aircraft engines, so as soon as they started losing aircraft, they wouldn't be able to replace them very quickly. So, yeah, I, I guess I'm a, a pess-optimist, if you like. I'm pessimistic about um, uh, the possibilities of short-term conflict but optimistic that there won't be a major war, uh, I hope, in my lifetime.
Okay, up to microphone two, please. Good morning, this is Ben. My question is, um, how would the world solve systemic problems like global warming if it's fractured into competing regional areas? And if, uh, say, a region panic and decided to use geoengineering to staff off the effects of global warming, how, how could the rest of the world respond apart from war? Mm. Wow, great, great questions, Ben. Um, the answer to your first question is not very well at all. Uh, we should all be very, very concerned about uh, the um, debilitation and increasing disinvestment, I think, of uh, the great powers in global institutions. <coughs> Um, uh, I think that uh, more and more people are rightly pessimistic about institutions such as the United Nations delivering meaningful action on major uh, problems, but they're all we've got. They're all we've got. Part of the problem is uh, if you get increasing disinvestment in them, if you get um, the United Nations being um, surpassed by a new form of the great powers simply working out deals among themselves, you won't have uh, fora in which um, all of the world can come together to try and solve problems. You'll get, quite frankly, um, uh, deals, um, pragmatic deals done among the great powers uh, to quite often the, uh, the detriment of some of our small island Pacific neighbours. So um, that will be a problem. The, the prospect of geoengineering, um, you know, I guess is a very real one. Um, but again, I think that a, a world, uh, the, any world that we're going into is going to be a world in which the great powers do their best to try and avoid major war. And so um, uh, one of the things that a, a great power compact or concert would do would be to try and avoid conflict through things like geoengineering, whether by coming up with deals or by sharing the the burden or something like that. Uh, I think that that would be, again, um, the way forward. But again, it would be uh, not the sort of late 20th century that we, we came uh, to, we've come to expect that, uh, that you do get real agreements among the world community on, on issues of international justice and humanitarian affairs and, and custodianship. Uh, that would be a world, I think, that would be impoverished by a great power world. Thank you. Microphone one. Hello, my name... Sorry, one first and we'll come up to you. Hi, um, my name is Amy. Um, first, I just wanted to thank you for your perspectives on this um, huge issue coming up. So, um, I just had a question mostly about how interactions um, in potentially in this type of world will go, because you did mention that in an ideal case scenario and most probably these great leaders from these great powers would be interacting and they'd need to interact to continue this prosperity. But at the same time, they may become a bit mutually unintelligible from each other. Yep. And um, as well, um, listening to your presentation, I couldn't help but think of the clash of civilizations mm. theory and you've gotten quite a few conflict questions already. So I guess I wanted to ask um, what is most likely and how much effort would be needed um, for the best case scenario and interactions between countries potentially having these conflicts, simply becoming more introverted and not talking to each other at all and mm. having any relations or um, any other option at all? Thanks, thanks, Amy. Look, um, I, I, I don't, don't want it to sound like a clash of civilizations argument because I think that, um, that these uh, spheres of influence would be um, around not ethnicity but really around economic power. 
um, what really interests me about the way that China in particular is exercising economic power is um, that um, the Chinese, as good doctrinaire Marxists, believe uh, that economic there is an economic basic economic structure of human interactions and that if you shift the economic structure the economic economic substructure the political and social superstructures will change so if you look at for example what china has been doing in in provinces like xinjiang and tibet their belief is that um, if they change the underlying economic interactions of those regions uh, their, their populations will simply start to accept Chinese power and the Chinese state. And I see that very much as what's happening outside of China's borders. Uh, you can read what's happening in the South China Sea that way. Um, uh, but I won't go into that. So it's not, it's not civilizations or religions or cultures, but economic zones as, as the way it works. But do you think they're right? I mean, just... I'm sorry to interrupt your answer, but that notion that eventually Tibet will change its worldview because of economic drivers, which the Chinese have predicated their interventions on. Do you think that that's actually true, that that will happen? No, I think it's profoundly mistaken. Right, OK. Sorry. Um, yeah. But, yeah, but, but uh, you know, maybe maybe I will be disproved yeah. in the long run. OK, of, sorry to interrupt. Not long run of history. Um, uh, so, Amy, uh, look, I think uh, the relations among the great powers will be about maintaining their own power. So it will be an agreement not to interfere in each other's zones of power and they will interact in a way that, that makes sure that they maintain their own power. For countries like Australia, whatever zone of, of, of power we fit into, we will have to accept that there's a hierarchic order and we have to defer to what um, the great power in charge really wants. The answer to this is that smaller countries like Australia need to wake up and need to make sure that we start acting on this. Um, that uh, we need to realise that these global institutions uh, that we take for granted, this globalism that we take for granted, is actually, you know, the, the, the oxygen of life for, for societies such as ours. We need to start getting much more active than we have been uh, in maintaining and starting to drive reform in these institutions. Let me give you an example. The, the IMF, um, the International Monetary Fund, one of the reasons that, that China China and, and India and other countries are starting to build other institutions is that China at the moment has the same uh, voting rights in the IMF as Belgium does. And the Europeans and the Americans will not give up that power. It's now time for countries like Australia to start saying you have to give up that power. We need to start to campaign for the real uh, reform of these institutions, the reinvestment in these institutions of real governance capacity rather than as ways of maintaining power. OK, microphone two. Yes, uh, hello, my name is Heimo. Uh, I'm from Europe. Uh, the, the question I have is that the globalism uh, led to a problem that the wealthiest people became even wealthier and the poorest became poorer. So um, a, a more diverse world would actually, you know, prevent from this trend. Now, why should we, we be afraid if, if, if uh, like China and, and Russia and other that are not involved in this globalism build alternatives to what we have? Because alternatives, you know, provides options, so 
um, uh, people would not control. The, the internet is basically controlled by the US. ICANN controls the top-level domain and controls the internet by that. Google controls the internet. When the Germans said uh, we don't want Google to replicate data in their search results, Google stopped searching them and they lost business. So everybody's depending on this centralized globalism. So how could we prevent that uh, uh, and what's the alternative choice? I think the, the alternative choice is uh, one of democratising globalism. You're right that there, there are negative aspects of globalism. There are aspects of globalism that are still controlled uh, by the wealthiest and the most powerful on earth. Um, the hopeful signs were, I think, that at the turn of the 21st century, you were starting to see the absolute lead in wealth and technology and innovation um, start to democratise away from Europe and the United States, basically. You were starting to see the rise of Asian centres of wealth and, uh, and innovation and technology and so on. Um, and one would hope that that is a process that can continue while globalism continues. Um, I would hate to see uh, the, all of the positives of globalism lost uh, as a process of the diffusion of power away from the, the wealthy and powerful. The best possible future that I think uh, we can hope for is that a new form of more democratic globalism continues. That would be uh, the, 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 the best possible vision for the century we're living in. Microphone one. Thanks, Michael. And this is a, an extension of probably the last two questions, which is, if this is going to happen inevitably, we, you said that we, we probably don't get a choice. Maybe step up, step back a slightly. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, everybody. <laughs> um, is there a, a real active role for, let's call them second-tier nations like Australia, to play in brokering the relationships between the emerging great powers, which will a, a, a improve the communications between them, but also perhaps this keep this democratisation of globalisation going? Mm. And what role do we need to start playing in this country to really you know, make that happen? Mm. I don't think it's inevitable, but I think it is inevitable if we don't do anything about it. I think the key, the key lever that the great powers have is economic power. Um, and the commonality that I see uh, between the way that small countries are reacting to China in Southeast Asia and smaller countries are reacting to Russia in Europe is that none of them are prepared to put their economic prosperity on the line to make a point to the great powers that what you are doing is unacceptable to us. So in, in both Europe and Southeast Asia, we have this weird situation where you have great powers throwing their weight around, uh, challenging norms, acting like the great powers of the past, uh, small countries getting upset about it, but not getting so upset about it that they can really put um, they can really start to leverage the things that the great powers really worry about, which is their, their economies. Ultimately, a great power depends on the ability of its economy to keep growing. In no case in Southeast Asia, for example, has any of the alternative claimants to the South China Sea said to China, you stop behaving as you are behaving or we will suspend all relations with you and we will start 
isolating China in, in Southeast Asia. Now, I, I think if, you, if, if they started to do that to China, China would start to have second thoughts about what it was doing. Would ASEAN need to act collectively? I don't think ASEAN could act collectively. Right. But if you got significant economies uh, starting to say, that's it, um, we signed a special security relationship with you uh, some years ago, that's on hold, uh, we're not going to negotiate uh, the regional comprehensive economic partnership with you, that all goes on hold until a resolution occurs in the South China Sea. I think Beijing would really start to, to, uh, to wonder about that. Similarly in Europe, uh, a willingness of European countries to put genuine economic interests at stake and leverage genuine economic pain on Russia, I think would get uh, Vladimir Putin starting to take notice. So that's the sort of investment that smaller countries need to make. Uh, I think, you know, the thing that worries me is that uh, this sort of world will be inevitable because no one is prepared to bear any pain. They think that simply maintaining a world uh, that is in their interest can be done painlessly, and I'm afraid that sort of option isn't open to us anymore. Microphone two, please. Good morning, everybody. Um, Michael, I have a question. I'm very impressed with your power to be able to change Russia's geographical location. Because if you open in your book, Russia is in Euro-Asia, and Moscow in particular is actually in Europe, and 80% population live in Europe. So yes, there are... There's maybe 20% of the land on the east uh, from the Ural Mountains, which is Asia and is very rich in resources, but nevertheless, nevertheless, it's still quite European. So I understand that your topic about um, rising powers that challenge old status quo that was dominated by the United States. So, and maybe this topic actually, the Asian countries and Russia. Mm. Can you please answer? Well, I mean, you know, continental definitions, I think, uh, serve their purpose to a certain extent. But uh, let me put it this, to you this way. Russia is a power in Asia as the United States is a power in Asia. You may not think that they are Asian powers, but they are powers in Asia because their presence there affects the power dynamics in Asia. So whether you want to define Russia as European or Eurasian, uh, there is no question in my mind that Russia is a significant power that affects the power dynamics in Asia. I, look, if you want a, just an interesting insight into this question, the linkages that were being implied there, another book that you might find interesting is called Ghost Fleet, which was published by an expert in military technology who actually spoke at FODI within the first or second year of it. His name's Peter W. Singer, not Peter Singer, the Australian philosopher, but another. 
Every single piece of technology that he refers to in that book exists at the moment and there are pages and pages of references to show what's possible. And he posits in this, and it's being used by the Pentagon now to prepare things, and actually an alliance between China and Russia uh, within their spheres, a preemptive strike against the United States in space, in cyberspace, and against um, the Hawaiian Pacific Fleet. And all of it is backed up by things. So another possibility is that different powers align in together against one in order to secure some of the things they want, like the energy security and things of that kind. Now, that's just a note. If you're interested in this topic, have a look out for, for Ghost Fleet. But we'll go now to microphone one. Not to say you shouldn't also read Michael's book, just made it clear, but there are others. Yes. I am both. Yeah, both. <laughs> Thanks, Simon. Uh, Ian Dunlop. Um, <clears throat> Michael, the one thing I found missing, uh, I, I would agree with your characterisation between the globalist and the feudal world, but the one thing I found missing is that there is now a set of mega issues surmounting all of this built around the limits to growth concepts, which are now becoming quite real. Climate change is obviously a prime one, but you've got the same thing with food and water and, and what have you. And in many ways, I mean, the globalist model is now uh, hitting its limits. It can't continue the way it's been doing, otherwise uh, we're going to get into very big problems. The feudalist model, the same, uh, the same situation in a sense. Now, I mean, in many ways, the feudal model has been more successful at least in the attempts being made so far to contain the mega issues. And the globalist one so far shows little sign of actually being able to cope with it. I just wonder whether, I mean, we're not gonna solve this without some sort of merging, uh, actually, of the two streams, it seems to me. I mean, what's happening in migration in Europe at the moment in terms of the crisis is probably going to lead to a much greater degree of feudalism within the European system, I suspect. And that's just a precursor of the sort of problems that are going to come. So where do you see this going? I mean, is there, in fact, another model that probably comes out of this that uh, leads us to focus on the, the much bigger mega concerns and I suppose what's a, a, more or less an extension of the 20th century um, you know, concepts of feudalism and globalism? Thanks, Ian. Good to see you again. Um, look, I, I, my, my own view, and I'd be curious to hear what, why you think the feudalist uh, model would be more effective in dealing with big issues like climate change. Uh, my, my own view is that, as flawed as it is, globalism and its institutions are the best way of working out possible deals to share uh, the burdens, uh, to realise the collective impacts of what's occurring. Um, the vision I have of a feudal world, of a great power world, of, of spheres of influence is uh, that it would, be an, it would be a world in which the shifting of costs, the shifting of blame, um, the non-cooperation on big issues was much more possible. The, the, the vanishing of fora in which um, countries could uh, shame each other, basically, about what they're doing or not doing about these big issues um, would be something that I, I wouldn't want to see uh, melt away or become much less uh, vibrant than they are today. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you've got any examples of, uh, of kind of feudal, where feudal answers are better than the, than the current global. It'll be incredibly ones. brief because we can't have a discussion on this here because other people are waiting. 
Well, just a very quick one. I mean, China's been so far more effective at trying to address climate change than the Western powers have. I mean, it's not necessarily purely because of feudalism. I mean, there's obviously very short-term pressures, but um, an authoritarian system may actually be better able to cope with mega issues than the system that we've reached in the globalism context so far. Maybe that can change. I might ask you just to hold that thought and maybe incorporate a microphone too. Hi, I'm Krishna. Thank you for your talk. Uh, my question is um, regarding the UN Security Council. Do you think it should be reformed, and do you think it will be reformed, particularly the permanent members? Uh, yes and no. Um, uh, there's no question that the UN Security... All questions seem to have yes and no. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, there's no question that the UN Security Council, in the way it is structured, is an anachronism. Uh, the, the fact that the current veto-wielding members, you know, no-one would claim that they are the five greatest powers on Earth... Um, there is a, an interesting element to that uh, in which um, uh, the, the creation of five veto-wielding great powers is actually um, a, 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 a sort of part of the DNA of anti-globalism. It's part of that sphere of influence DNA that crept into the design of the United Nations. The, the fact that Franklin Roosevelt um, believed that you could have a globalist institution, but you needed the great powers to maintain control and you needed to give them a veto in order that they couldn't interfere in each other's affairs. So you can see just just the fact that that kind of aberrant DNA is there in the most globalist institution that we've got. I think the reform of the United Nations needs to be uh, the um, eradication of permanent members and the, the, the Security Council needs to be a rotating membership basis, uh, perhaps allowing the largest economies in the world uh, to have uh, much smaller cycles of rotation. So they're on the, the Security Council much more regularly. But the idea of five great powers with responsibilities for world order, able to veto anything that the world body was able to do, I think is, is a deep anachronism and is part of the problems, part of the, the core problem in, in globalism. I think, sir, you'll have to be the last person asking a question, so the final one from microphone one. Uh, hi, I'm Reid. Uh, it seems to me that the forced autarky of... Uh, economic sanctions would be a close parallel to feudalism. Uh, In Russia, following Crimea, those forced sanctions seem to hurt them quite dramatically. Uh, With that in mind, does that mean that if we do go to a state of feudalism, would it be sustainable if everyone's feeling that kind of pain? Look, I I have no doubt that um, a feudal world would be a world in which our economic options were much more limited. Um, What we consumed would be much more expensive. What we consumed would be much more rare. Why? Because we simply wouldn't be able to rely on free global markets to bring us things. Uh, We wouldn't have the technology cycle continually improving the production of the things that we use and and the things that we need. So there would be considerably more economic pain. But um, in answer to your question, I would say that however much pain economic pain is being felt by Putin's Russia at the moment, it's not changing what they're doing one iota. 
Look, ladies and gentlemen, um, as I mentioned before, Michael Wesley will be signing his book uh, out in the foyer at the South there. But I hope you'll agree with me that you've heard this morning a genuinely dangerous idea presented by somebody who is entirely a master of his discipline. And the danger lies in its absolute plausibility. So would you please uh, join with me in thanking Michael Wesley. Thank you, Mark.